We're going to do a three-week series uh, on, on Jesus' prediction of his own death. Uh, when Dave and I, I planned that out, uh, it made sense. And then when we looked at it, it made more sense for what was two weeks to become one week. So we did that in two weeks. So this morning uh, is just sort of another message from the, um, from the, the Psalms. It is a psalm. Here's what happened. I was flipping, uh, flipping channels uh, late at night, and I was flipping through, and I landed on the religious channel, uh, where usually I only stop on the religious channel to, to like, yell at, at the TV. You know, it's like a sport. You're watching the religious channel. They say something super crazy, and you yell, where is that in the Bible? That's the kind of my interaction usually with religious TV. But I happened to flip through, and, and there was a guy... Um, uh, he looked to be a, a kind of a conservative, old-school, stereotypical uh, uh, pastor guy. Uh, he had his slicked-back hair uh, and his suit, and he had pastor voice. Um, I don't think I use pastor voice, but um, it's impressive. He had pastor voice, but here's the thing. When I flipped by, he was quoting from a passage, and it was just captivating. It was like the Word of God is like so much more powerful the, how, how it's presented, and he was quoting Psalm chapter 24, and I just listened to him quote it, and it, it just became the most uh, captivating thing, and I couldn't look away. And so uh, this morning, we're going to go uh, just together for a brief time into Psalm chapter 24, uh, because the word of God itself is so, is so powerful. And so I'm going to read to you from Psalm chapter 24 now says this, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and he has established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive from the Lord a blessing and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. So I was listening to this guy, and it's, it's, it's amazingly worshipful. It's amazing. And so you, I was encountering and listening to it, and I just, uh, I, I just started to say to myself, I, I want to study that passage. I want to spend time with it. I want to read that. And so there's the power of the, of, of, of the worship of the king of glory in verses 7 through 10. And, and then there's the... the um, uh, the, the, the beginning part or the intro to that in, in verse 1. And so we'll begin there. It says this, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. It is what we, we say to you regularly. It's what we, we understand to be true, at least cognitively. But it, it is a fact that we would be re, do well to remember and to review. And that is this, is that there is nothing in the universe and there's no place that you can go that does not belong to Jesus. Abraham Kuyper uh, said it like this, there is no square inch of the universe over which the Lord does not rightly cry, mine. It is all his, and this, this psalm is emphasizing that idea, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There is nothing 
that is beyond his purview. There is nothing that is beyond his control. There is nothing that is beyond his ownership. The world and those who dwell there in not only does he uh, is he the the owner the lord god of the the planet he is the lord god uh, he is the owner of the people who dwell therein there is nothing or nobody that is outside the hand or the control of god for he has founded it upon the seas and he has established it upon the rivers it's just a poetic way to say this god is in control because he made it God gets to, gets to be in charge and is worthy and do the worship because it's his. He alone is, is the creator. And being a creator is, is, is an amazing thing. Sometimes I talk with my, with my children about the, about the meaning or the first, uh, if you've done Discovery Bible Study, the first lesson is Genesis 1. And we talk in Genesis 1 about how God in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we talk about this. Well, if that's true about God, how does that change how we should, we should act? And one of those answers, and it's a right answer, is that God is a creative God, and therefore if we're created and made in his, his image, we should be like him and we should be creative. That is a true statement. In other words, when we, when we use and do the work of our hands, when we use our minds to do something from music to art to, to, to a, a fine meal, all of those, those things are reflective of the image of God. And yet I would say this, in reality, our, our creation is, is limited to working with things that God has put there. What we really do is we take things and we act upon a creative impulse, but we rearrange the things that God has already put into the universe to make it. And so if you make, uh, if you make a fine and beautiful meal, you are using the, the, uh, the food that God put on the earth. Recently we had... Uh, we had, uh, we had steak and we made a sauce for the steak. But the coolest thing uh, we did from that is that Aldi, uh, which is the Drake's favorite shopping place, uh, Aldi had the multicolored potatoes on sale. And uh, we bought the multicolored potatoes. And the potatoes were, were, were yellow and the potatoes were red and the potatoes were purple. And we roasted those and we put those on the plate and we put a sauce in. And when we arranged it, usually when we eat, you can imagine... Uh, with a family of six, with three teenage boys. Usually we just put the food on the table and everybody takes their own. And it's that kind of thing that's easier. And this one, we want it to be, be fancier. So we put the, the meat on the plate and arranged it. And we put the potatoes on the plate and arranged it. And we put the, uh, we put the sauce over it. And we tried to make it, make it look pretty, as, um, as many of us do now that, uh, now that cooking shows have become popular on TV and we watch them. Right, And so we tried to do that, but here's the reality. We had a pretty plate. We created or crafted that plate, but we didn't make anything that was on the plate. Right? God made the cows, and for that alone, we should worship him. Right? Uh, so God made the cows. God made the potatoes. God made, uh, made the dairy from which we made this. God made all of that, and it's the same thing when we come into, a, into a, let's say we were composing... A, a, a song, and we're going to compose a song of, of worship, or even if you're going to compose a song of love to, 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 your, to your spouse, if you come in and do that, you can do that, but you do that from notes that already existed. You did not create a one of those notes. They, they existed. And so humans, though we act with a creative impulse, what we really are is crafters. We take things that already exist, and we arrange them in a way to give them... Uh, 
to give them a picture of beauty. And it is good and it's true that we reflect the character of God. But what God does is different. Because when God came along and he created the earth, he did not start from something that, that was. He started from that which isn't. One of the, one of the, um, the fun terms, and I, I like to teach this every time we talk about it because it's fun to hear uh, the teenagers like, like to reuse the words. It's the one in my house. But when God made the earth, he created it out of nothing. The fancy word is ex nihilo, Out of nothing. There was nothing. And he made it. So there was nothing. In fact, even I always say when we talk about when people want to debate origins, whether God made it or whether some process made it, I say they all ultimately get to the same problem. Because if I would say that God made it out of nothing, he spoke and it was, which is a clear statement in the beginning. Those who would be naturalists and deny the existence of God would say, well, a process created it. The process was the gas is swirled, the gas has come together, there's an explosion, it causes this, or, uh, and I, I'm not trying to be terribly scientific there, to, to be honest, um, so don't critique that science. I'm, I'm simply saying that eventually if you say there's a process whereby gases come together to create the earth, I, I, okay, my question would simply be where did the gases come from? And if there's an answer to that question, then my next question would be, okay, where did the thing that made the gases come from? And if there's an answer to that question, then my question would be, okay, where did the thing that made the gas, <laughs> made the thing that made the gases, where did that come from? Eventually, we all get to the point where there is nothing, and now we know that there is something, unless the argument is that the universe itself is eternal. But that seems to be a grand step of faith itself, right? And so... Uh, my, my point there is simply to be however one believes uh, that the earth came to be, my, my core commitment is this, is that God himself is the cause. He is the mover behind that. He is what makes that, that happen. And so God made the universe. How did he make the universe? He made it out of nothing. All of that to emphasize this, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein, he has founded it upon the seas, he has established it upon the rivers. Why? Because he is the creator God. He has made all that is. The breath that is in your lungs, the blood that throws, flows through your veins, all of that was put there by a designer creator God. And he did not craft it, he created it. It came from his word and from, from his will, and you were. Therefore, therefore, he is He is. Above everything, he is, therefore, he is the, the one who gets to be in charge of the earth. He is the owner because he is the creator. Verse 3 says this, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? It's meant to be a contrast, right? It's meant for you to say this, Well, he is the one who made everything. He's the one that made everything that is. He is the one who was so powerful that he spoke and it was. He is the one who from his... From his, from his lips, reality, everything you see comes. He, if he is the one who made everything, if he is the one who owns everything, well then who can approach him? And there's meant to be a little bit of a contrast there, a little bit of us saying, wow, who, who can approach him? If one such as this, if he's so great that he made everything that is, everything that is beautiful in the, in, in the universe Every process that functions from the newborn baby to the Niagara Falls uh, uh, and everything in between that, that catches our eyes as beautiful and amazing. And if he made all of that, 
Then who in the world could approach him? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? We get another reason that standing near to him, not only is he creator, but he's holy. He's set apart. He's different. We are not by nature holy. And so who are we? The ones that are owned, the ones who, who are human, who are we to approach him? Verse 4 that says this, so who can come? Well, who can come is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So who gets to approach this God? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That verse reads, if this were all we knew, of Scripture, if God had given us nothing else in Scripture, if God had given us no further revelation, this verse reads as terribly bad news. Because the question is, who then can approach this Creator God? Who can approach Him? He's made everything. He's created everything. He's set into place the processes and the truths of the universe. He has established it based upon His own will. And we are just the ones He's made. And we if we are honest, are not by birth or by nature or by choice the ones who have clean hands and a pure heart. We are not the ones who don't lift our, up our souls to what is false. We are not the ones who don't swear deceitfully. If we have no other revelation, this verse is bad news. And the bad news essentially goes like this. God is great. He made everything great. He is holy and set apart. And he is so holy that there is no one who can approach him. If we had no other scripture. Verse 6 just says, Such is the generation who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So let's talk about that for, for a moment. This is not the only scripture we have, right? Luckily, we have the fullness of, uh, of scripture, both before before the Psalms and after the Psalms, which tell us that this God, this God that's talked about, this God who is a creator God, the God who makes everything that is, the God who established that the sun would rise, the God who, who established the, the seasons, which in Michigan at this time of year may seem terrible, but he has made everything that is. We know from Scripture that this God Though he made all of those things, and though we broke both covenant and relationship with him through our great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, and we, as individuals, we, we, it would be easy to quickly blame the genetic reality that we descend from Adam, but the reality is, is that what Adam did, you would have done as well. We are rebels to the cause, and we are rebels to, to, to the call of God. And so if we had no other scripture, it's bad news. But the good news is, is that in the whole of scripture, that the, that the, that the gospel begins in, in, in Genesis 1 with God creating. It continues on after Adam and Eve sin against God. We see God show up on the scene, and what is the first thing God does the man and the woman are, have been walking with God in the in the cool of, uh, of day but now they realize that they're that, that they have sinned because they've sinned against God they've gone and they've hidden themselves and God calls to them and says Adam Eve where are you they respond 
We were hiding because we realized that we were naked and we were ashamed. God replies, who told you this? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And they had. What does God do immediately after that? It is true that he puts into place certain curses for breaking the covenant. In other words, sin, when sin happens, there's consequence from sin. He puts into place consequences. But his next move, move then is this, is that he kills an animal and he takes the, 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 the skin of the animal and he gives clothes to the man and the woman. Those things speak of, of a covenant. The reality that, that for, for sins to be forgiven, there needs to be a death, a death to cover the sins, and also that there, not only is there a death to take away the punishment of the sins, but God also gave them a covering to cover the shame of their, their sins. But we have the whole of Scripture, so we know that even in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, which tells the beginning of the story, that God is telling the same story all throughout. He's just telling, telling, it, uh, uh, he's telling it in various ways, and he's going to tell it finally through this reality. We know then, uh, living on this side of history, is that the story of, of Adam and Eve is inextricably linked with the story of God sending someone to rescue the descendants of Adam and Eve. And the rest of the Old Testament, progressing to the New Testament, tells the story again and again and again that humans sin, that humans are broken, that humans are not righteous, but that God is good, that God does not sin, that God is righteous, and that he loves people. And so we see the graceful actions of God all throughout the, the Old Testament. God institutes the law as an act of grace, for the people to protect them from all the things. He also institutes the sacrificial system so that there had to be a sacrifice to make atonement or covering for the sins. But all of that to tell the story that there was going to come one day in human history, there was going to come a, a time, there was going to come a, a, a reality where God was going to send not a, not a, 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 a sheep, but he was going to send the the lamb. And so the people would make sacrifices of, of, of sheep. The God of the universe was preparing for a time when he would become the sacrifice. And so the story of the Old Testament going into the New Testament is there was coming one who would rescue the people and his name was Jesus. He was the pure spotless lamb. He was the righteous one. He was the one who was without sin. He was the one who had done no wrong. And so when I read Verse number three, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, I know intuitively that that is not in my flesh me. I also know this as a, as a, as a follower of Jesus, that Jesus himself is this person. And I'm not claiming that Psalm, that Psalm 24 is directly meant to be messianic. I'm simply saying that as we understand the scope of scripture, what we understand is that, is there anyone who is worthy to ascend the hill? Yes, his name is Jesus. The Bible has been telling his story from Genesis, and it continues to tell his story through Revelation. Is there one who is worthy to ascend the hill and go into the holy place? Yes, his name is Jesus because he has clean hands and because he has a pure heart and because he does not lift up his soul to what is false. And so in my flesh, I realize that I cannot approach the hill of the Lord. But I know that in the fullness of scripture, it tells me that there is one who has approached the hill of the Lord 
for me, and he has approached it through the way he has lived his life. He has approached it through the sinlessness of his existence, and then he approaches it with finality in this sense when he goes up the hill, and the hill of this, uh, the Lord in this case with the hill of Golgotha, where they brought Jesus up onto the hill. They nailed him to the cross. They put him to death. He becomes the Passover lamb, but the final Passover lamb, not a sheep raised on a farm, but the lamb of God who has come into the world to take away the sins of the people. They nail Jesus to the cross. He dies there. When his blood is shed, my sins are paid for so that when I come to Jesus, I am in him. So that, as it says in scripture, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for me so that I might become the righteousness of God. So that scripture tells me repeatedly that Jesus has given me his righteousness and he has taken from me my sinfulness. He has applied his goodness to me and taken the punishment from me. God's wrath poured out upon Jesus so that I might be viewed by God as righteous. That's the scope in the story of scripture. It starts in Genesis. It keeps going until Revelation, but it culminates on a cross in, 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 uh, on a hill called Golgotha when Jesus himself dies in the place of you and I, taking the wrath of God upon him, though he had not sinned, he approaches that hill. Though he had not done wrong, he approached that hill. Though he would never have lifted up his soul to anything other than, than the Lord God, his Father, he approached that hill. The hill he approached was the hill of Golgotha, and it was the hill of death. When he did that, he took upon himself your sin and my sin so that we might approach this hill. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. That is what we get when we are in Christ. Jesus has paid it all. We sing that song sometimes. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. That's the truth. He's paid it. You have no sin debt to pay if you are in Christ. Jesus has paid it all. You have no, no unrighteousness to atone for if you are in Christ. Jesus has atoned for it all. You do not need to seek out another sacrifice or another sheep to slaughter. Jesus was the sheep that was led to slaughter. So then, who can approach the hill of the Lord? You can. You can and I can. Why? Because we approach it in Jesus we approach it because of Jesus. We approach it under the blood of Jesus. We approach it because Jesus has already ascended the hill of Golgotha on our behalf so that we might ascend the hill of the Lord. Therefore, we can in Christ have clean hands. We can have a pure heart. We can not lift up our soul to faults. We don't need to worship false idols anymore. And so, so there's this reality Right? There's a reality that when we are in Christ, our sins have been atoned for. There's a reality that when we're in Christ, our sins have been paid for. There's a reality when we're in Christ, our sins are not being held against us. But that reality should spur us on to this reality. If we are not under the curse of sin anymore, then why do we continue to live in sin? If we're not under the curse of sin, then my suggestion to all of us would be that we stop sinning. Which seems like a silly suggestion, 
right? Well, just stop sinning. You could not do that, and you cannot do that on your own. But the testimony of Scripture also says this, that those whom Christ foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Philippians says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The promise of Jesus at the, uh, at the cross when he said, it is finished, he resurrects and he says to his disciples, I am sending the Holy Spirit to you. The story of scripture also tells us that if we are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit is in us. And if the Spirit is in us, not only are our sins atoned for, not only are our sins forgiven, not only are our sins not held against us, but the even better news is, is one of the joys of our salvation is this, we don't have to sin anymore. The chains have been broken. Sin does not own us. Sin does not overcome us. You don't have to sin anymore. And I don't think that sometimes we say that enough. There are sometimes... There are people who leave out the good news of the gospel so they would tell you that if you want a relationship with God, you've got to be good, work harder, strive harder. That's not the gospel. It's bad news. You can't do it. But there are other people who would give you the good news of the gospel and tell you that Jesus has paid it all and not remind you that part of what he paid for was so that you would not have to sin anymore. We tell you that salvation comes through Jesus and what he did on the cross, but we ignore that one of the greatest rewards of the salvation of the cross is that you can live in harmony with the way of the cross. And sometimes we tell you all about Jesus, come to Jesus to forgive your sins, but we don't tell you that one of the th great things about coming to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, one of the rewards of knowing Jesus is that you don't have to sin anymore. You're not in chains anymore. You are not bound anymore. And it doesn't make any sense to say, I want to come to Jesus, but continue to walk in your sin because you're not coming to Jesus then. Because the reward of knowing him is to be like him. The reward of knowing him is to be near him. The reward of knowing him is to walk with him. The reward of knowing him is that you have been chosen by him to be conformed to the image of him so that you might be like him. This is what salvation gives you. And the good news says you've been rescued in Christ so that you might be like Christ. You don't have to sin anymore. So the good news is, as God views you, who can ascend the hill? And who shall stand in the holy place? You can, because Jesus did. And he's already done it for you. Who has clean hands? You do, because Jesus did. And he's given them to you. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false? This one is harder, right? Who lifts up their soul to what is false? You do, every day, and so do I. And yet the good news of Christ is because of this imputed righteousness that God views us. He sees us through the lens of Christ, so he's not holding it against us. But here's the good news, is that you do not have to lift your soul up to what is false anymore. You can lift your soul up only to Christ and only to him. So that when it says, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, you can say, I don't lift my soul to what is false anymore. And it may be momentary and it may be fleeting. And tomorrow you might lift your soul up to what is false. But if you have a repentant and penitent heart, you come back to Christ and say, I'm sorry, I won't lift my soul to what is false. And you can ascend the hill to the Lord. Who does not swear deceitfully? We don't. 
Who receives blessings from the Lord? We do. And righteousness from the God of his salvation? We do. We do, we do, we do. That's us. His name is Jesus. Every blessing that is given, every blessing that is prophesied in Scripture, Jesus is the true and better Israel. Every blessing that is promised all throughout Scripture is given to Israel, who is Christ. It is given to Christ. He is the, both the fulfillment and the recipient of the promises. But inasmuch as we are in him, his righteousness, his goodness is imputed to us. Who he is is given to us, but the promises are given to us as well. You are a beneficiary or a recipient of every good thing that is in Christ. You get righteousness from God. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. I would say then, believer, I would say then, Christ follower, let that be you. Apart from him, you cannot seek him. Apart from him, you cannot know him. But he has called you, and if he is conforming you, then daily you should be seeking his face. Be a part of that generation who seeks the face of the God of Jacob. And then, so that, that all happens. And then what happens is, in this psalm, it seems like one of those things is that the, the gravity of what has been said in verses 1 through 6 result in what is a chorus of praise in verses 7 through 13. So, David, it's a psalm of David. Remember, David himself has struggled with sin. David himself has murdered and he's been an adulterer. He's been all of those things and yet he's called a man after God's own heart because David has experienced the grace of, grace of God. David is, is penitent. David brings his sinfulness to God and knows that he can't earn God's salvation. So David, who, who writes this, is probably writing of himself and then he realizes that, he's, that he himself is a recipient of grace. What then? It becomes a song of worship. And he says this. Lift up your head, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory might come in. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. When you realize what Christ has done for you, when you realize that the creator of the universe, he who made everything that is, he who made everything that you can see, he who made the breath in your lungs, he who designed you and knew every moment of your life and every hair on your head, he knew the moment you would take your first breath and he knows the moment you will take your last. He knows all of it. He knew before time began, every sin you would commit. He knew every wrong you would do. He knew that you would be born an enemy of him. He knew this, and yet Ephesians 1.4 says this, God chose us in Christ based upon what we did? No. God chose us in Christ because we were so good at who we were? No. God chose us in Christ how? God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the world was, he chose you. When you realize that God before the foundation of the world chose you, when you realize that he called you, when you realize that he sent Jesus to rescue you, when you realize that he shed his blood to take the pain and the punishment from you, when you realize that the wrath of God was poured out upon him so that you might receive only the blessings of the Father, when you realize that when he took your junk and replaced it with his righteousness, when you realize the greatness of who he is, when you realize that he ascended Golgotha so that you could ascend the hill of the Lord, what is the proper response? It is this, 
Lift your heads, O gates, and be lifted, O ancient doors, the king, that the king of glory might come in. Who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord mighty, he's mighty in battle. What was the battle? The battle was the overcoming of your sinfulness, my sinfulness, your brokenness, my brokenness. He has won the battle. How did he win it? He won it by storming Golgotha. It was a victory unthinkable. How did he win the victory? He won it, not with the weapons in his hands, but with the nails placed in his hands. He stormed it. He won the battle. How did he win the battle? Not by driving out his enemies, but allowing his enemies to drive him to his death. He went to his death, and he becomes then the Lord mighty in battle. Well, how does he win? They put him on a cross. He dies. They put him in a grave. He's dead. He lays there for three days, and what do you know? Raise your head, O ancient gates. Open your doors that the king of glory may come in. Out of the grave comes the king of glory. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord strong and mighty. What is the Lord strong and mighty done? You might know a lot of strong people. I might know a lot of strong people, but I only know one who has been put to death and walked out of a grave to rescue me. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He is overcome. He overcame by the cross. He overcame by the resurrection. And sin has lost. Death is destroyed. And there is coming a day when he will make all things new. Lift up your head, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king I hope for your hearts and for your existence that you understand and feel the gravity of that passage and that gravity of that piece of worship. God who made everything, God who made you, God who made me, had every right when we rebelled against us to wipe us out and destroy us. He gave us life. He gave us breath. He gave us benefit. He gave us blessing. And the reality is, is that, that, that we were rebels. We hated him. We ran from him. And yet the testimony of the whole story of Scripture from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation is this, that the king of glory has ascended the hill of Golgotha so that you might ascend the hill of the Lord. And your response and my response should simply be this. One of insane, utterly flabbergasted, inexpressible worship to the King of glory. He has come. He ascended the hill to Golgotha so that you could ascend the, so that you could ascend the hill of the Lord. He was placed behind the gate of the tomb so that the tomb could no longer hold you. So what then should our response be? Our response should be, who is this king of glory? The Lord, the Lord is the king of glory, strong 
and mighty in battle.